you wouldn't do this unless you enjoyed the pressure to some degree. Mm. I like things that are challenging. I like learning. I like having to work through roadblocks. I like building networks and calling upon people to tap into their wisdom. And all of that is part of learning how to sell and push your company forward. I always say to people, most entrepreneurs enjoyed making Legos as a kid. You enjoyed building things, but that doesn't necessarily mean it makes you a good entrepreneur. It just means that you're excited about starting with nothing and building it into something, but you need a couple other skill sets in there, which is just a little bit of fearlessness to go after whatever you got to go after every single day. And if you enjoy playing in that fearlessness space, then I think you can get it done. Yeah. And if you get a Lego set for your birthday, the first thing you got to do is throw away the instructions. Right. <laughs> yep. Build it now, huh? to our series a so i would say until you get to your series a you're still a startup you're still working through all the iteration process there's debate on that i mean you could have a startup that doesn't have a really on paper it's going to raise a ton more money and still and not have a product yet right <laughs> you know so it just depends i mean it's a moving target that word startup i guess is my point we incorporated in 2015 and then we didn't actually launch SaaS until May of last year. So it's still fairly new in terms of that. Having to fundraise and represent GiveSum during a decidedly, you know, introverted and locked down time, that must have been nuts. Yeah, I will be quite happy to go back to meeting investors in person over coffee or lunch. It's a thousand times easier, by the way. Oh, absolutely. There's something, like, there's something about... The accelerated relationship building that happens over breaking bread together just is just goes back to our DNA of, of how relationships are built. And so Zoom happens. I just think it's faster. It's faster with angel investors. That's for sure. Man, being in person, there's a whole chemistry there that uh, we're all missing out on. And I think yeah. anybody who figures out how to put that back together, I organize conferences and stuff. I think the real nature of who we are relies on how often we can get together and, and not rely on our tweets to figure out who somebody is. Well, and the, the serendipity moments don't happen in Zoom, right? If I walk down to the coffee shop or if I go to a conference or if I show up to some random event, I have no idea that that person that I'm waiting in line with at the coffee shop or at the conference or I'm in a small group together is going to become a half a million dollar investor until we meet each other, we start talking, we have things in common, the conversation's flowing. And before you know it, you're exchanging contacts and then you're following up and now you've got a deal and you're thinking, how did I even meet that person? You know, yeah. <laughs> well, you met cause you showed up somewhere, you were present, they were present. You had a moment to connect. You were able to connect in 30 seconds. Like so much of that is, it just is so intangible inside of the zoom world, you know, cause the zoom world has to be scheduled. You got to go through the cold call process. Maybe they're being introduced or not, but they haven't met you. So you're just a number. And so I don't think it beats those moments where anything can happen on any given day when you run into other human beings. Awesome. See, that's the really cool part too. The idea that you really made this interactive. To be a signal amid the noise now, you know, armchair activism and armchair support is that goes only so far, but you really energize people by getting them involved in events and 
helping people contribute of their with their whole selves as opposed to just whipping out a credit card every so right. often. And so I really want to talk about that because that seems unique and different than something specific that could grow extensively, especially if we're talking about, I saw some of the testimonials of people who've used your service before and they've been very happy with it. Yeah. And we're trying to, that referral source, that flywheel of that feedback loop, people being in love with the product and sharing it with others and getting to where we need to be that's how we get that exponential curve. We can't do it with just a sales team. Mm. Every time we have a new customer, we're always talking to them like, what did you think? How would you make it better? What, what do you want to do? What more could we do to delight you to get that referral? Like, what does that look like? And speaking of delighting you, this is episode 242 of the Successfully Funded Podcast brought to you by KiwiTech, a growing ecosystem of entrepreneurs, investors, mentors, accelerators, incubators, and corporations. We help early and growth stage startups build viable products, drive traction, raise capital, and scale their businesses. Now, before we go further, there's a brief disclaimer I'm going to read. You can read the entire disclaimer at successfullyfundedpodcast.com slash disclaimer. But it's important to note that KiwiTech is not acting as a broker, dealer, or investment advisor and is not registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission in any such capacities. At no time does KiwiTech provide investment advice, endorsement, analysis, or recommendations with respect to securities. Information contained herein should be viewed for entertainment purposes only. KiwiTech does not verify or assure that information provided by any issuer offering its securities is accurate or complete, or that the valuation of such securities is appropriate. Investing in securities, particularly in securities issued by startup companies, involves substantial risk, and investors should be able to bear the loss of their entire investment. I am your host, Doug French, and I'm very uh, happy to have my guest with me today. He is the president and CEO and co-founder of GiveSum, which helps charitable organizations free up valuable by providing a simple online platform that organizations can use to create fundraising pages, sell event tickets, accept donations, manage their volunteers, track donor behavior, and more, all in one place. And I'm happy to welcome Sean Weehan. Sean, welcome. Hi, thank you, Doug. It's great to be a part of the podcast today, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. I am too. I really enjoyed researching this. Starting from uh, your humble beginnings at Dana Point, California, I, uh, are you located there now? I live in Costa Mesa, California. Our office mm -hmm. is in Newport Beach, California. Spent most of my childhood and teenage years running around Dana Point. At some point, I decided I need to get out of town and experience different parts of the country. So I went to Denver. Regis University for a couple of years, then to Seattle University, did some graduate studies in the Bay Area, did a year of volunteer work in Alabama. And one day I, I decided, you know, I grew up in paradise, Dana Point. <laughs> it's got to be one of the nicest places in the country. There's no humidity. It's perfect weather, lots of surfing and sailing to get done. And how do I get back there? And so eventually got back to Orange County, California. Right. You don't realize it's paradise until you, you're away from paradise for a while and you think, oh, right. So yeah, back back near my family and just enjoying building a business in Southern California. You know, when you run a tech company, the big question you want to ask yourself is, well, should we move up to Silicon Valley and live the Silicon Valley dream in the Bay Area with everybody else? Or do we just use the network we have in the areas where we know and, and build it there? And so in the early days, we took a vote if we should stay in, in the Dana Point, Orange County area, or if we should go to Silicon Valley. And I actually wanted to go to Silicon Valley, but nobody else did. So we really? decided we would build the company down in uh, the sunny 70 degree part of the country. I was going to say, what would you do with all your shorts if you moved up to the Bay Area? <laughs> <laughs> you, you burn them. 
<laughs> exactly. You just have to, you know, you have yeah. to sit around and wonder if you'll ever see the sun again. I mean, no offense. I love San Francisco, but if you grew up in Dana Point, I mean, was that always a place you thought you'd eventually end up raising your family? So when you're 16, you look out at the world and you want to be a part of whatever's going on out there. I've always wanted to take chances and do different things. I wanted to live in different parts of the country, which I got to do. But eventually opportunities opened up for me back here in Southern California to work at a local church, which was attractive to me when I was right out of college. And that's really what brought me back and got me started on my career, both in ministry and philanthropy. And that philanthropy ultimately led to me starting a tech company. And this seemed to be the right place to do it. See, and that's what I'd like to get started with, just your upbringing uh, down there in Southern California. Because I'm always really curious in the initial underpinnings of an entrepreneurial career. Never mind a career with a backbone of faith or with a backbone of ministry, which I'm also really interested in, especially since you have a divinity degree. Yeah. What- for, well, for, for your listeners that may not have any idea what Jesuit teaching is or Jesuit schools are, basically in the Roman Catholic Church, you have different orders of priests, one of those orders is the Jesuits. And the Jesuits are known for creating a lot of high schools and universities throughout the country. Georgetown would be one of them. Loyola Marymount would be another. And they they have them all over the country. My parents said to me, we want you to go to public school through high school, but we would, we'd really like you to go to a Jesuit college. And after a few years of doing high school ministry in my hometown at Dana Point, decided I really enjoyed doing ministry and wanted to get an education in. So I went to the Jesuit School of Theology at Berkeley, which believe it or not, Berkeley has a graduate theological union made up of many different faiths, many different religions that are teaching classes from old time biblical studies to modern spiritualities, new age stuff. Uh, You can take classes on atheism. It's like an incredible journey through faith and spirituality. And that was fascinating to me in my 20s. I wanted to learn a lot about it. So I got that master's in divinity and Ended up, believe it or not, working in the Roman Catholic Church as a lay minister for 17 years total for a long period of time. I do believe um, that. <laughs> both with, with children and adults. And the Jesuit education background focuses on critical thinking. So really everything you do in life, critically thinking about why you do it, what is the process, science and faith go hand in hand because science is built on critical thinking built on facts and having hypothesis and working through those hypotheses to get to the truth. And it's a very wide open understanding of God, that God can be a, a vast God that can do many, many different things. He can create the cells and we can study them and learn from them, but he can also do miraculous things that we don't understand. And that's a little bit of the Jesuit education to walk in the gray zone of faith um, where we just don't understand everything and to be okay with that. And, you know, business is a lot like that, Doug. (laughs) Don't understand everything. You have some faith that you're going to somehow find the answers as you go along. And so I think the Jesuit education helped with that. All right, entrepreneurs, listen up. If you'd like to have a real sense of taking on challenges as they come and being content not to know everything all the time, consider a Jesuit education. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Because it will thread the needle between science and faith, which too many people think are mutually exclusive, at least I think. Again, this goes back to business, because if you understand business as less of a black and white and more of a nuance of questions that have to be answered, and there's no exact right way to go about it, but to be inquisitive and to keep pursuing without giving up the path that's going to get you through, 
then, you know, that sort of education is helpful. If you have a very black and white thinking of the world, and then you approach business where you hit a roadblock, you hit a dead end, you hit a no, you hit something that says definitively, you can't do this. If that's the only world upon or your lens upon which you see the world where it's either yes or no, black or white, well, then you just give up. But if you understand nuance, you understand gray, you understand that there's maybe a thousand different ways to do something. Then when you hit that roadblock, you say, okay, there's the roadblock there. Let me look at another way. Let me try getting around here. Let's approach this problem from this angle or that angle. Let's get a different opinion on this. And that inquisitive mind is nurtured in that Jesuit education. So I think it's been beneficial for me to have it. It's been helpful. And do you think our culture now has time for nuance, has time for critical thinking? Because I think we've seen so many, so many issues are reduced to this reductive binary yes or no to the real detriment because we've, we're losing the power to discuss and to um, yes, uh, amiably honestly, disagree all of the, all of these things because it's either you're in or you're out, you know, that uh, well, the Sith Lords, I, that's what the Sith Lords yes, say, right? Either you're yes. with us or you're against us. Yes. And it's, it's laziness. I mean, that's just the honest truth. If you're really not willing to take the time to look at any issue or to even understand your friends that maybe have a different opinion, you know, Hey, why do you have that opinion? What's in your background that made you think that way? Uh, where are you getting your information from? Are you discerning a little bit more on what that information is that you're getting and doing that for ourselves as well? If we're too lazy, we won't do any of the work and we'll just say, well, this is my team. My team believes this and I don't have the time to research or think about it. I'm just going to trust that, you know, this is right. And as a result, you know, you have a, a non nuanced conversation of details that are riddled within Rubik's cubes that are hard to understand. And as a result, you don't really get there to a, a solid solution. You get there to half-baked black and white solutions that often don't lead to the answers to the problems we have. And I think the challenge for whether it's America, the world at large, whether it's in our own businesses, is to push through that need or desire to be lazy and to take the time to really work with something, whether it's a problem within the company, whether it's a problem within our society, to really work with it and the people that we have to find the right solution. Because at the end of the day, I've learned this many times in our business, if we take the shortcut lazy path, ultimately we will pay the piper later on down the road. You're touching on a lot of issues that are interrelated, you know, short-term myopia, let's just get our earnings for this quarter let's just solve what's in front of us without thinking about what the ramifications of this decision might be down the road. And I, it's, you mentioned too, I think there is some laziness. How much of that though, do you think is self-preservation? Because I do think that humans were just not built to absorb as much information as we're being subjected to. And that's where you get the roots of confirmation bias, right? Because rather than pursue an answer based on critical thinking and weighing both sides of something, there's security and tribalism and there's security in seeking out the answer that corroborates your thesis in the first place. Would you yeah, agree with that? I, I would say that the biggest problem human beings, I think, are facing post social media is we are experiencing this thing that's known as future shock. The world is moving at a pace that historically human beings have not been able to move at. So we're, we're in shock by the rapid pace of the future. Let me use a very typical example within the Roman Catholic Church. 60, 70 years ago, Vatican II was a major 
change in, in the Roman Catholic Church where they changed from doing church one way to doing church a quite different radical way. One of those big ways was they got rid of Latin in the mass and said, hey, we're going to do it in the vernacular of whatever town you live in. So if that's English, you do you do the, the worship service in English. And if you can believe it, everyone was doing it in Latin. They didn't, barely spoke Latin or they didn't speak any Latin. And now we're going to do it in English. Well, then you fast forward to today. And even if you look at America, the world has drastically changed than what the Roman Catholic, Catholic Church is doing in terms of gay marriage, in terms of equal rights with women and men, and, and just so many other changes related to how we communicate with one another in rapid succession of things coming through. And the church that is 2,000 years old, that has years and years of wisdom, isn't able to adapt quickly to a world that is rapidly having and adopting new ideas. And so... If I look at the church now, and I could look at it from one perspective and say it's completely irrelevant. It has no meaning in my life anymore because it has not adopted all the thinkings that I have now as, let's say, a, a modern person living in the 21st century with all of my technology, with all of my views that I might have in the progressiveness of human beings and what that looks like for us. And something that's old does not have that. But the challenge with all that is it doesn't mean that something that's from the past doesn't have wisdom. And wisdom is really what I think modern human beings are wanting to negate, to say the wisdom isn't important. What previous generations thought, that isn't important. And we don't want to be concerned with that. And I think that if we negate everything that has come before us, we're just going to repeat the same issues and problems over and over again. We have to continuously be learning what they went through, the struggles that they went through. The, understanding our history is important so that we can then, in the choices that we make, whether it's in our business or in, as citizens, that we're, we're actually taking into the wisdom that has been passed to us. If we don't, then we become very tribal. We become very dogmatic in our understanding of each other and how we operate. And then ultimately it leads to, ultimately it could lead to war, but what it really leads to is stagnation where nothing's moving. Uh, we can't get anything going forward because everybody's stuck in their own place. And I think that's really my fear more than anything else is just how do we get beyond certain key points here so that we can actually do good work? That's the challenge, weighing those two things out. Well, your uh, give some itself is threading a lot of needles. And most of, uh, one of which particularly is how to create an organization that tries to involve and inspire goodness and service and also sustains itself profitably. Now, it's, this it's also. A fun, it's a fun challenge to have. <laughs> <laughs> Can you do good and do well at the same time? Yes, that's right. I, I like it. There's your business card right there. We do good and we yeah, do well. Do well. Irrespective of, of your opinion of Catholicism, I do find it interesting that currently the Supreme Court has seven Catholics on it. And you can talk about how there's like an association with, I think, the, the rigors of Catholicism often overlap with the rigors of the law. And there's an attraction between the two. Mm -hmm. Some of the things you were talking about in terms of how religion, how dogma, how churches need to evolve to meet their times but also put a hand up every so often and say some of these teachings actually transcend time and define which is which. Yeah, in Catholic teaching, you have scripture and tradition. You have a lot of community churches or fundamentalist Christians that would say, oh, it's just scripture. But 
you have scripture and tradition and tradition is the, what we would call the movement of the spirit over time. And what happens within Catholic circles is you have liberal wings of Catholicism and you have conservative wings of Catholicism and it's a big tent. You could have Supreme court justices, some of which have been educated in Jesuit schools, even who may be far on a conservative spectrum. And you could have liberal Catholics that, you know, have totally differing views about how the world needs to operate within these different constraints that we call laws, right? So there's breadth within both scripture and tradition and how one perceives it. And Catholics struggle with that all the time. Now, presidents, they're the ones who are appointing these judges, why they've appointed so many Catholics, you know, that comes down to maybe educational histories, that comes down to background, I don't know. The Federalist Society. (laughs) Yeah, the Federalist Society. I mean, the Catholics have gotten in there. Um, But we're doing this podcast, you know, a week or two out of Roe v. Wade being overturned. And it's really interesting because in Catholic circles, on the conservative side, you could have lots of Catholics who, you know, believe that a child is, is legit right from the moment of conception. And they may feel it is their right or their obligation to go out and to make the law of the land that no abortion can take place. Now, in the same world, you could have a liberal Catholic say, that's fine that you believe that, but God gives us choices to choose a variety of different things. And that's fundamental to our understanding of God. So you could proclaim this belief, but to have to enforce it within laws, some liberal Catholics would say, well, that belief doesn't need to be enforced in the and imposed, yes, on in. people so who perhaps yeah, this, have different and yeah. imposed, right? And you could have a liberal Catholic say, This is an issue about liberty and giving people equal liberty and opportunity. So, if, if a woman has to go to term, she doesn't have the same equal opportunity that a man does who does not have to take a child to term or even care for that child once that child is born. There's no laws for the male. So, you could have a liberal Catholic say, This is absolutely ridiculous, this is not equal. This is not equal in the eyes of God. This is not justice. And you could have somebody on the conservative side speaking total opposite to say this is this if we don't have life from the initial thread all the way to the end of life, one seamless garment, then how can we even proclaim love in the world, right? This is the nuanced fighting conversation that takes place between in just one singular, you know, billion wide church, Roman Catholic church on left and right. And that's going to happen in the court. And that's going to happen in America. And that's part of the overwhelming dialogue. And that's the challenge of the world upon which we live in. But tradition of the church means that the spirit of the law moves forward, that we progress, we become something new, that God is not just 2,000 or 4,000 years ago living stale in a book, that God is active in today's world, that God is transforming us, that the spirit is moving in us in different ways and revealing to us something new in life. And it, it, does, it is not static. It is, it is ongoing revealing itself. So the revelation is not just at some previous time. It is now. And I think sometimes we forget that, that maybe there's a message to be learned at this moment. And that what is before us is something new to be understood about how God wants things to work in the world. Well, it sounds like you've had this discussion a number of times, especially as you were training to get your, your master's. And I'm really curious to know that path from your master's degree 
to perhaps one what might be seen as a less secular calling to create this business. Was there always a sense of entrepreneurship in your mind because you were working in ministry and, and you'd also started yeah, Future Leaders yeah. of Our Community or Flock, which was clever, well done. Thank you. So here's, here's what happened. <laughs> you, you pursue a, a divinity degree, which for me was just, it was complete self-indulgence. I loved it. I loved learning from great professors and fun classmates. And you get out and you're like, okay, now what am I going to do with this? I did some ministry, adult ministry teaching courses and that sort of thing. But I wanted to work with my peers in the philanthropy space. So I started this organization, Future Leaders of Our Community, matching young professionals on boards and committees and introducing them to the nonprofit space. As I was doing that and doing ministry, what, what I understood that I loved was faith in action or just using our gifts and talents for service of others to make our community a better place. And every nonprofit that we were working with, so many of them were dealing with this new technology of doing digital payments online, having to deal with social media and marketing, um, having to sell tickets and run online auctions, just doing so many things that were new to them. And so they were looking at us saying, Hey, you guys are young professionals. Could you help us with our tech? And I was asked that question over and over and over again. And that's where I started seeing an opportunity. Hey, you know, there's a problem here that maybe we could help solve and help these organizations be more successful in how they, they approach the new modern world of digital, of all things digital, right? So it was, it was actually ministry mixed with philanthropy, mixed with getting young professionals involved that revealed to me the idea. And I wasn't thinking I would ever be an entrepreneur. My, my brothers were entrepreneurs and other people in my family were entrepreneurs, but it wasn't like this was ingrained in us as siblings. Like this is, you're going to be an entrepreneur. I just wanted to do some ministry and and it led me to being an entrepreneur. Well, it sounds like it's in your blood, though. I mean, if your family has all this experience trying to create things, you know, I, I think it shouldn't be much of a surprise that you came along. You may have been a late bloomer, but uh, yeah. <laughs> it seems to have hit at the right place at the right time. But but uh, Future Leaders was a nonprofit. Future Leaders was a nonprofit, and I was running that nonprofit, and we were operating off of a membership sustainability model. We'd charge people members or memberships, and then they would get matched with a nonprofit, and we would give them different opportunities to volunteer. And we ran it for eight years, and we had a lot of success. We had thousands and thousands of young professionals got matched with hundreds of nonprofits across Southern California. So now, when you look at eight years of experience running that, and now segueing to give some, as you move from nonprofit to profit-based, what are the most important lessons you learned from the future leaders model that you bring to give some that you're trying to augment and expand with a more revenue-based model? Nonprofits are complex. Oh yeah. And <laughs> Is it a, was it a 501c3? What was it? 501c3 nonprofits have multiple moving parts. If you're going to be an entrepreneur for any different, for any customer in any market, you're not going to be able to build a product of any value unless you really understand what is going on in that market. For us, we had to understand that nonprofits do not all look alike. Their mission and visions are quite different, but what they have in common is they're operating off of a passion, whether it's the founder or the staff really want to make a difference in the world. But that often means that they're not maybe business oriented, may mean that they're not tech oriented, may mean that they don't even know how to do operations. <laughs> they just want to see something good be done in the world. And so understanding that customer and the needs of that customer to have to do 50,000 things 
let's take a soup kitchen, for example, they got to feed the homeless, but they got to have a place to feed the homeless. They got to have dollars coming in the door, whether that's through events that they're running or through donations that they're soliciting, they have to spend it in a certain way that is going to allow them to actually accomplish their mission and vision and do it in a transparent way that people feel like their money is being put to the right community at the right time in the right way and the staff isn't overpaid and it just goes on and on and on and at the end of the day they're just a small business you know they have expenses they have their revenue streams and the only benefit is that those that give to that business get the tax write-off and they don't have to pay taxes as a business so that's a benefit for them but keeping a nonprofit sustainable is really difficult because they don't have all the opportunities that regular businesses have to start new products to get investments to you know do things that we do as as a c-corp and mm-hmm. so I learned all that by doing feature leaders of our community. I learned that by doing 18 years of church ministry. And I realized, hey, these are passionate people. They want to have an impact on the world, but, but they, they're not going to be successful if they don't have the right tools. I've had a lot of conversations with companies offering turnkey services. Bring us on board, soup to nuts, we'll handle it for you. And I do think that that particular business model is a very attractive one because you you want to bring people on who know what they're doing and can offer the results and have experience doing that. So I imagine there was a whole turnkey aspect that was a, a, a benchmark of give some when it first hit the drawing table. Is that fair to say? The overarching idea was let's give people an all-in-one that they can operate themselves. It's okay. expensive to hire consultants. It's expensive to have other people come into your nonprofit and run things. I, I tell nonprofits all the time, you want to find a sustainability model where you're doing a social enterprise that brings in revenue or you're asking for donations at certain times of the year, you're running events that bring in money. You want to find a a sustainability model that works based on your burn rate as a nonprofit. And if you have to add a bunch of consultants to that, those are extra expenses. You don't have internal staff that's running this. And, And so I really wanted to build something that a small, literally a volunteer staff or a small staff of a few paid employees could manage a platform without needing much assistance and that it would be simple enough and turnkey enough that they could just get in very quickly, start collecting donations, running events, et cetera, without being overwhelmed by a massive Salesforce platform that they're going to have to hire consultants to figure out how to work and integrate and all that sort of thing. I just wanted it to be simple. So our initial market was let's go after the small to medium sized charities that are small staffed. When you first launched to give some and people started coming on using your services, what kind of early results inspired you to think this could be a long-term idea that would work? When we went to a SaaS model last year, looking at all the different ways that we could approach a massive market of 1.5 million charities, the beachhead that we chose, believe it or not, was service clubs, and in particular, Rotary service clubs. Now, why Rotary? Well, because Rotary is made up of a lot of baby boomers who are slow to adopt technology. So it was somewhat of white space, but also because the majority of Rotary clubs have a 501c three nonprofit foundation that goes along with their 51C4 club. And the two of them operate hand in hand. So a club brings on memberships, the members can't write that off, but then they can go to a fundraiser for the local soup kitchen or boys and girls club, and they can write that off with their foundation. So we looked at that and we thought, this is a great beachhead for us to go into. There's 7,500 Rotary clubs in the United States. Let's just start working with those Rotary clubs. They're in every I was going to say, yeah, their ubiquity alone was They're made them everywhere. a hell of a target. Yeah. Yeah. So any town we could go and build relationships with that Rotary Club, and then we could get connected to the nonprofits that they're partnering with. And over the last year, we've onboarded 700 Rotary Clubs across the entire U.S. There are Rotary Clubs everywhere, and 
they are using GiveSum, which is uh, using GiveSum in all parts of GiveSum. And so we are servicing these clubs. Now, what's unique about this beachhead is made up of all volunteers. These aren't staff. They, these aren't people that look at 50 different charity platforms. We just literally call them or reach out to them and say, hey, we want to help you be better in technology. You got to collect donations from different people in the community. You got to invoice people. You got to run these different events. You're doing this by Excel spreadsheets. Let's help you get to a more modern 21st century technology and do it all under one roof with all the data in one place and allow you to keep going back out to the community uh, that's engaging with you and use that as a marketing and also recruitment tool for more people to become Rotarians. Now, we don't want to stay on that beach. We want to get off that beach into the much larger nonprofit sector and to tackle that community side of, of the sector, which is about a third of it made up of local community nonprofits. Um, the other two thirds of philanthropy are education centers and religion. We want to hold off on those for a while, work on local community nonprofits, service them as best we can. But we're using Rotary as that beachhead to get in, get into that market. And it's been working out very well for us. And when you look at the prospects for your equity raise, what other aspects of the business model do you hope this equity raise is going to uh, improve? When you first build your product, you have an MVP, then you iterate and iterate, and then you get to your beta. Eventually, you get out to the broader market with what you think is, okay, this is good enough for market. And then customers come in and they start telling you how to make it better and more streamlined and easier UX, UI, and getting it to the point where they don't have to call into our customer success team to ask a thousand questions about this or that or that, you know, people have to use it in order for you to, to make the product better. And so we're going through that with some of the money that's coming in through the raise. And then we're also seeing the success of our sales team. So we just want to amplify that and get to that point where we hit that exponential growth based on product market fit with a great product. That's easy to use. That's got great UX UI mixed with sales. That's bringing in new customers that are satisfied, delighted. They're happy. They're referring us. We get that flywheel spinning faster and faster as more salespeople come on. And that's all part of the race. That's all part of the, the fun startup cycle. Iteration turned into exponential growth. And let's talk about that revenue stream too. You talk about you have a sales team that has to sell, give some. And again, another needle to thread, the idea of finding profit amid doing good, you know, and recognizing that the whole idea is you don't want to be seen as profiting off of misfortune that people are responding to. Uh, so I have two key things here. One is when it comes to our business model, I tell every nonprofit, there is no such thing as a free lunch. Yeah. If you want to have great staff working for your nonprofit, you're going to have to pay them. If you want to serve the homeless, you're going to have to buy the food or get it somehow or find some sustainability model and people get paid. Either the grocery market gets paid or your staff gets paid or the guy who pulled the car up, you got to pay for the gas. There is no nonprofit that makes it past year five if they do not understand that that people or the services that they're being provided or the service they're providing, that there's money transaction that's taking place there. If they think that everything's just going to be given to them because it's a worthy cause, well, guess what? They're not going to be around in a few years. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't work that way. Things cost money. No, we have a SaaS model. We charge $50 a month or $500 for the year. That is reasonable for a full beginning to end platform. We are not asking for some exorbitant, huge amount of money. We do have a cut of the transaction, but even then it's not a huge cut. We make about, we charge 5%, but after everybody gets paid, it's about 2% is what we get. And so our entire business is built on volume. The average Rotary Club is only going to do ten dollars to $20,000 in donations a year. So you do the math on that, how many Rotary Clubs we have to bring on or how many charities we have to bring on actually to 
to cover our burn rate. It's a lot. We're also going to take a bit of the transaction, which your donor is going to cover. We opt them in to pay the fee. They pay it 90% of the time. And if they don't, money still comes out of the transaction. It doesn't come out of the charity's checking account. It just goes into their account. And by the way, the better our customers do, the better we do. If they don't do well, we don't do well. We're incentivized that they raise more money. We're incentivized that they have better events. We're incentivized that they can use the platform to the fullest extent and that it's easy for them to do. Because if they're not transacting dollars, we're not making money. So at every given moment of, of the feature set that we put into the roadmap is all about how do we make the charity more successful? And yes, we're going to profit from that, which is great. But so are they. <laughs> well, as, yeah, especially since it sounds like your business model, as you say, is based on volume, but there's volume within a client, correct? I mean, if there's, because you build these platforms that involve events, that involve large interactive experiences, and those are discrete. Does that subscription model fluctuate with the quantity of events or how does this no, thing scale? They get the entire platform for as many opportunities they want to create. They basically, they, they get an entire website with as many pages they want to build for the same price. Now we want them to build a ton of pages because that means they're going to be processing a lot more money. So it still works for us on, on the business model, right? Mm. But we just want to give them the tools to create as much, as much, as much. And we've now, we've built everything. We've taken every dollar off the table. So on a general operation of a charity, digital payments for donations, ticket sales, item sales, auctions, and point of sale. So at any in a, an event, they're selling beer, they're selling you know an extra donation, whatever. We now integrated with Stripe. We have a tapper, swiper, insert credit card deal, and that money's taken off the table. So a organization can run every single dollar through the Gibson platform through any one of our services, and that helps them keep their data in one place, it also generates more revenue for us. Yeah, well, all if you can keep it all under one roof, that's extraordinary. Correct. So and they don't have to use multiple platforms. So they don't have to use Square for their point of sale and then right. use Eventbrite for tickets and then use some other donor system for their donations. No, they just use Gibson for all of it. So as great an idea as this is and as great as it's working out, let's talk about headwinds. What keeps you up at night? One of the challenges of running a philanthropy-based startup is that your investor class is limited if they think the space is either A, too crowded, or they're just not interested in the space because they don't think there's money to be made there. So the types of investors you have to find are philanthropy-oriented investors who want to participate in a social enterprise that's having an impact on the world but may not be a typical consumer brand that is going to be in you know, the next Instagram, the next TikTok, whatever. And so your pool of investors is a little bit smaller. You have to go find them, seek them out. And if you're in Southern California versus in Silicon Valley, they're not in every coffee shop. And so what keeps me up is expanding continuously my network of potential investors that are going to participate. And not just on a WeFunder campaign, crowd campaign, where you have numerous small donations come in. You also need some big checks from time to time. And we've brought in two VCs over the last several years that have invested, you know, a million plus, but we've also brought in 40 investors that are all philanthropy based investors that get the concept, want to see the space improved and are willing to invest in it. But you have to find them. That takes time. So I'm always concerned about our burn rate. I'm always concerned about where the, the next investment dollar is going to come in from while we're reaching that acceleration point, that real product market fit, you know, hockey stick ramp 
and we're close, but we still have a ways to go. And I always say to our investors, the stickiest thing here is when I show you our pro forma, our pro forma is based off of our ability to raise money quickly. If we cannot raise money quickly and we don't have the ability to hire a ton of people right out of the gate and really burn through the money at an accelerated operation, hitting the pro forma is delayed. And I always have to be cautious of that. Our pro forma is real. The numbers are real, given that we're able to raise. If the raise takes time, we're going to be slowed down and hitting those numbers. So, you know, that is really the challenge of the CEO is to motivate enough people and get enough excitement that you can do your round raises quickly. So you have the money to burn through to get to the next level of revenue. And we hit a huge benchmark this last month. We hit 10,000 in monthly revenue, which is a big benchmark to hit on a transaction volume-based business model. The next benchmark is 1 million ARR. And in order to you know, essentially get to $85,000 in revenue per month to get to that 1 million ARR annual recurring revenue, you got to really accelerate your efforts. We got to 8X to 10X what we're doing now. The only way we're going to be able to do that is to grow our team and to continue to make a better product that brings in more referrals. I always ask this of parents in particular. I mean, if you travel a lot I mean, you have a young family, how's that working out? Trying to balance time with your handout versus time with your young kids trying to well, teach them I how think, to surf? I think, I think routines are always important. And once you get your established routine and you know your work hours are head down, hyper-focused, and when the work hour is over, you do as much as you can to have your attention, you know, with kids or your other family members or whoever, but compartmentalizing the day has worked for me. And I have a very compartmental day. Every day looks almost identical to the next. And it's a solid six day week for me. And I take one day to completely decompress, no phone, subconscious, let it just spin and solve the problems I've been trying to work on all week. But if I can get into that routine, I schedule my entire day around the routine. I'm, I'm able to make it all work. Which is interesting because, you know, we have discussions as well about the importance of structure, whereas a lot of people get into entrepreneurship because the structure is anathema to them. The idea of they're attracted to the thought that every day is different, but compartmentalization is important, especially when you have your office in your pocket. Now you really have to train yourself to put that device someplace you can't reach it and be present with your family if that's something that you've worked out with your partner and working out a plan that uh, fits everybody. This was shared with me and I'll share it with your, with your listeners. I find it really helpful. As an entrepreneur, especially when you're running a company, if you approach the week as a professional athlete would, where you have game days, you have buffer days, and you have days off, your buffer days are your practice days. Your buffer days are when you're going to write the emails that you write every week. When you talk to your team members on your Zoom meetings like you do every week. Your game days are when you're pitching to an investor for the first time. You know, your biggest customer meeting of the week. Those are your game days. And then you have your days off where your body has to rest. And if you see yourself as a professional athlete and you go through that cycle, then when you get to the beginning of the week, you can look at your week and say, okay, it looks like Wednesday's going to be a game day. I'm going to spend Monday and Tuesday as a practice warm-up day, doing things I can do in my sleep, but I'm also going to prep a little bit for that game day. But if you get into that kind of mental routine of like, you wake up in the morning, today is a game day. I'm going to hit it hard knowing that tomorrow is going to be not as difficult. And I argue that you can only do two game days a week. So don't book 
you know, the entire week of the top meetings stagger them because you're some of them, you're just not going to do well at, you're going to lose those days. And so I like to stagger them out through the course of the month. Yes. And if you reach a certain age, maybe even two game days a week can seem pretty daunting. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. Um, I really appreciate the time, Sean. This has been a great conversation. I could have talked about the nature of, of Jesuit teachings for hours on its own. I just think there's a lot there, you know, as far as critical thinking and galaxy thinking that a CEO needs to bring to the table. I really appreciate the time, Sean. I wish you all the best of luck with this. Doug, really appreciate it as well. And uh, thank you listeners for participating in our conversation today. Uh, if listeners want to learn more about GiveSum, where can they find out about you? Where do you write? Where do you express yourself? Where can we hear more about the brain of Sean Weehan? Yeah, so a couple different areas. Gibson is spelled G-I-V-S-U-M. We like to say that that is a short for giving summary because Gibson tracks all your philanthropical giving, puts it into a Gibson score, and it's all in one place. So it has your summary of all the donations that work through taxes at the end of the year. So givesum.com, G-I-V-S-U-M.com. And I can be found on LinkedIn. Um, I also have a podcast that I haven't touched for a while, but it's fun to listen to at least the first six episodes called American Philanthropy. And we kind of highlight some different charities that are out there and the work that they're doing. Yeah, there's definitely opportunity there. When you build a platform like this, you can also white label it and go into completely different other verticals, which is something that we're, we're exploring. We're about to pull the trigger on our first one not related to philanthropy at all, but related to all the other tools of the platform, selling tickets, point of sale. And did you ever consider creating a sister company called Get Some? Get Some. Well, (laughs) yes. Yes, that has come up uh, in ha-ha comments many, many times. It's a dad joke, and I'll (laughs) I'll slash it out of this faster than you can. (laughs) It'll make your head spin. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and for any uh, people in the philanthropy world listening, they want to use our products, uh, you can go to givesome.com as well and get started from there. Thank you, Doug. Appreciate it. Well, um, thank you everybody for listening to episode 242 of the Successfully Funded Podcast. I have been your host, Doug French. That has been the co-founder, CEO, and president of GiveSome, Sean Weehan. Thanks again for listening and we will see you again next week. Bye-bye.